It's time for some inside animation. With your host, Adam Sartain. Today's guest, producer director Mike Hollingsworth. And now, here's your host, Adam Sartain. And we're back with the opener, the season opener of season three of Inside Animation, where we get inside information about the animation industry. I am your host, Adam Sartain. And with me today, we have animator Mike Hollingsworth. Hello, Adam. Thank you for having me on the season opener of season three. I would say it's a great, great honor but a great, great honor to be on episode one of season one. Right. The big, the big splashy beginning. The pilot, uh, if you will. <laughs> but but apparently, like, I'm I'm like the maybe the 40th most interesting person you could talk to. So let me amend my beginning statement. How dare you, Adam, invite me to be the first guest of season three? You scoundrel. You cad. You I know, <laughs> but it, it is an honor to have you on my podcast. Mike, for those of you who don't know, was ex- co-executive producer on BoJack, mm-hmm. BoJack Horseman, executive producer on a couple different shows, Tuca and Birdie, yeah? Uh, Co-EP on Tuca and Birdie, and executive producer on Inside Job. Side job, cat, yes. bur- cat burglar at Netflix. Yes, I remember uh, the, watching cat the, burglar. <laughs> the create the creator of Woody Woodpecker. Really, um, the <laughs> first person to use a symbol crash <laughs> as a sound effect. <laughs> and I was just fired from Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never worked on it. I got the email that I'd been fired from Rick and Morty for inappropriate behavior. Yeah, and I was like. I never worked on Rick and Morty. What is this about? They're like, well, you're fired. <laughs> so, but that's me, all of that stuff. Great. So I have a question because I haven't had too many people with the title executive producer on my show. What exactly does, I know what a producer does or vaguely what a producer does because I've had <laughs> a couple of producers, but what exactly does a executive producer do? Are there tasks associated with it? You're very, uh, you should not feel bad about not knowing what a producer does because it it is a very vague title. As an executive producer on Inside Job, I was kind of like a showrunner, even though Shion, the creator, was essentially the showrunner on her show. Or you could say Alex Hirsch was the showrunner. But actually, Alex Hirsch was sprinkling his magic pixie dust over the whole thing. <laughs> but in reality, day to day, was too busy to kind of run the thing. Okay. I was doing everything I could to make things run smoothly for Shion, the creator. 
So Shion got to do the creative parts and you did the nuts and bolts. Yeah, I was also doing the creative parts. Basically, like I want when Shion, when the creator comes into the room for everything, I don't want her to see half-baked stuff and things that are just not ready for her. So I would spend the time and make sure things were ready for her so that when she her butt hit sofa, she was watching a good presentation of whatever the meeting was, the radio play, the sound the uh, i mean the radio play the picture or the animatic or the final picture so i would be a creative executive producer then there of course there's money executive producers who are working more closely with the line producer and and the studio and and really kind of running the financials of the production which was not me in tv and cartoons they all there's always these these sheets that they have us look at, they always call us into these meetings, the line producers, and want us to look at these sheets. There are all these colored bars that are stretching out over a year. And they're like, what do you think of it? And I'm like, uh, need some magenta? I don't know. I don't know what this means. They're like, does this look good to you? And I was like, I don't speak this language. I don't know. But then, of course, to your the second half of your question, producer. Like I climbed the chain on Bojack of producers. I, I first, I, first I was the supervising director from season one, and then in like season three, I was a co-producer. And these are titles that writers also get who are in the writers' room. I was a co-producer, and then I was a producer, and then by the last two seasons, I was co-EP, and I was doing a lot, and my job was constantly evolving because I was involved in higher, like Raphael, the creator, Raphael was getting more busy and I was, and so were the EPs, the money EPs. So I was running more of the day-to-day of the show as Raphael was also working on getting Tukin Birdie greenlit with Lisa Hannibal and also running his Amazon show, Undone. So yeah, I was kind of on that show running more stuff. And then, you know, like Aaron Paul was a producer on BoJack. Now, what did Aaron Paul do as a producer on BoJack? Because also Will Arnett was a producer. I don't know that Will Arnett ever did anything additionally. I mean, he certainly helps the show overall. But like Aaron Paul never did anything additionally, except for one thing. And in that one thing, he earned his credit as producer. Netflix had taken the pitch from Raphael and they were wavering. Should we pick it up? Should we not pick it up? And Aaron Paul, in the prime of his heat of the last season of Breaking Bad, called Ted Sarandos, the head of programming at that time or whatever, of Netflix and said, pick this show up, bitch. (laughs) He literally said that? He told him to pick the show up. Yeah. Yeah. He said, pick this show up. And, and Ted Serrano said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. So Aaron Paul used, in that one phone call, basically completely earned his producer credit. And then, yeah. of course, there's the other aspect. There's so many people on these producer things. And I've always joked that on The Simpsons now, the, the producer credits at the front are, the credits at the top of an episode of The Simpsons are getting so long that eventually they're going to touch the end credits. <laughs> it's just going to be credits running through the whole episode. <laughs> That would actually be funny. (laughs) 
But credit, producer credits are also a way, like very, they get very persnickety about show business of not wanting, like they were very clear on Bojack that they would only pay people scale, the actors, to do voice work. Like Paul McCartney did a voice on Bojack once. And he got scale? And he got scale, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's what I was told. Obviously, yeah. I'm not in the books and... These are all recollections from 10 years ago that you're prying out of me. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> it's very painful memories. But yeah, he got scale. But uh, giving Aaron Paul and Will Arnett a producer credit is a way to pay them more money while sticking to their guns that everybody gets paid scale. Right. So they're paying Aaron Paul that standard 800 bucks or whatever for every session he comes in. But then the for a whole season, they're also giving him a million dollars or something. Right. Because whatever. I don't know. Producer, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very so. cool. Tell me a bit about uh, your work as a supervising director. What is What does that entail? Well, that story's even longer. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What are are some of the specifics? When you're a supervising director, you're a director of the directors. It's kind of like a a traffic cop. Also, I was in all of the, I was in all of the meetings. So I knew what was happening over the whole season. And it would happen quite frequently where a director would put something in their episode or do something. I was like, well, actually that character can't do that because... They actually, you know, it comes out that they're gay in the next episode. Right. So you can't do, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we can't have them, uh, you know, whatever. So I would just know what the arc was and be protecting that arc. Plus, I was just pretty good at directing and, and and just looking out for stuff. I was also the supervisor of the BG department, the character department. I'd work with the art director, Lisa Hanawalt, on BoJack and... Allison Dubois on Tuca and Birdie to just approve all the designs and right. and stuff. And also you like, the art director doesn't really know. They just know what's in the breakdown sheets. They watch the Animax too, but I would have a more of a knowledge like, no, we can't have that base there because a character walks right through there. And Knowing the, the blocking, so to speak. Yeah. And it's just a lot of managerial stuff like hiring and hey, this guy keeps coming in late. What are we going to do about this? There's also that kind of stuff that like the directors don't have to deal with. You wouldn't want them to deal with. You just want them to focus on directing their episodes. Right. And a lot of like going and having meetings with the executive producers. And there's always like a stupid song and dance where you're like over there and they're kind of going like, why are we spending so much money in Bee Gees on this episode? Like, why is this episode so expensive? And I'm like, Dude, we're just making the episode that came out of the writer's room. Right. <laughs> like, they're like, why is this episode more expensive than the rest? I was like, why did you let them write an episode that takes place in an amusement park? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't our idea. But there's a lot of those meetings where you have to like, you know, like bureaucratic nonsense where you're going over there and people are venting. <laughs> it wasn't a bad experience. Uh, workplace or anything it's just kind of just regular workplace nonsense right yeah and also as a supervising director i had access to the coffee machine across the street 
Everybody else had to drink the coffee on that side of the street, but I could go across the street to the executive side and drink <laughs> that coffee. So there's pretty, there's like very interesting perks like that. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Yeah, that's great. So let's move on to another segment where I like to go back in time. Let's go back to before you ever got your first should we go, you want to go back in time and do a Mary F. Kill? <laughs> I would, God, I would, I guess, kill Hitler, F. Trump, and who would, I guess, marry Cleopatra? I guess I'd marry Cleopatra. Not bad. Yeah, uh, I mean, so many, she destroyed, she was so beautiful that she wrecked so many kingdoms, her, you know? her beauty. But at the same time, I bet everybody was pretty stinky a thousand years ago. Right. And she like knew bathing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's no deodorant or anything like that. They're not, they're not bathing every day. Right. Hmm. Let's not go so far back. I'd kill Cleopatra too. Now forget, I'd just kill everybody. Yeah. I'd kill everybody. I'd kill everybody because I'd bring back a lot of germs from today too. So I'd kill everybody. (laughs) Let's go back to when you. uh... I bring COVID to the past. When you just got started in the industry, what, how did you come up in the industry? Like, did you go to a a animation school or, you know, uh, what did that look like? Yeah, I had a different bit of a different trajectory. I didn't go to college straight out of high school. I started doing stand-up comedy in the Bay Area. And, and then I moved to LA, not with animation dreams per se, but following stand-up comedy dreams and i soon figured out that that dream was a nightmare (laughs) no no i i uh i was also doing cartooning for like the la weekly and other little periodicals alternative press things zines and i eventually took some of those cartoons i always loved animation like i had real love of looney tunes and tex avery mgm the Muppets. So eventually I, it was when the democratization, democratization whoop, yeah, that's of, about right. uh, of animation software, like when Flash and Photoshop became so easily accessible, I was like, well, let me take some of these cartoons I'm drawing and making little animated cartoons. And the very first one I, I, the very first proper one that I made was this one called the Mustache Contest. And I made that and I submitted it to festivals and it got into a terrific amount of festivals. It got that first short I made got into the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival, which was a big festival at the time. London International Festival, Melbourne Animation Block Party in New York City, which I love. And also Annecy, the biggest animation festival in the world. Wow. Yeah. And there was a nice little story there where when my very first short I made got into Annecy and then they were like you you're a director so you can come you just need to pay for your flight and hotel and everything and I was like I can't I don't have the money to fly to France and stay in this little posh city and so I couldn't go and then just about 10 years later I ended up directing the underwater episode of Bojack which made it into the Annecy festival and then, of course, a mere 10 years later, I was working for Netflix. So I flew there. I was flown there first class. <laughs> and I 
was put up for free, given a rental car, and I won an award. Like I went up on stage and won Netflix's first award from Annecy. Fantastic. So it's a very, I was very aware, like, I think these are kind of like bookends in my life. Like 10 years ago, I, I, I got into this festival, but I couldn't even afford to go to it. And now 10 years later, I directed an episode of television and it won a special award here at Annecy. And I was, you know, for me, a middle-class kid treated like a king <laughs> going to Annecy, going, being flown there and everything. I don't know if they do that now. After, after Netflix lost two-thirds of its stock price. This yeah. was before it lost two-thirds of its stock price. Maybe it's why it lost two-thirds of us. I charged a lot of stuff to that room. <laughs> a lot of stuff. Just, just in that one in that one hotel room alone. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know you could charge jewelry to a room? Really? I jewelry. I was nice little Rolex watch. You know? I was charging other price of other trips to that to that uh room. I was charging so much stuff. Love <laughs> it. Uh, uh that an answer to a question? Yeah, that was yeah, that was great. What were some of your I mean, you mentioned Looney Tunes and and Tex Avery and all that. What were some other of your influences? I mean, stand-up comedy for sure, like stand-up comedy and Steve Martin and SNL. I really loved comedy and sitcoms. Like, you know, I grew up in a blue-collar house and my mom and dad had a job, so we were like latchkey kids and we just watched, my brother and I just watched so much damn TV and yeah. <laughs> it was almost, it, it. I wouldn't say it was like a film school, but it was a real, then it took me to go the extra mile. Right. It was good foundation because like I just watch TV. It's at this point, it's hard for me to watch TV. All I do is notice jump cuts and, and continuity errors. Like, <laughs> that almost in a way you can't enjoy it as much yeah yeah that's what me and that's what i you know and also like i i ruin things i remember when we were watching squid games with my girlfriend and the main character the main guy like he was real down on his luck he was obviously he was a drunk he was a degenerate gambler he he screwed up this opportunity with his daughter and he was staggering home but obviously he's the protagonist of the story because we're right. spending so much time with him and it's only episode one. <laughs> Not like he's going to be a dirt bag for 10 more episodes. Right. <laughs> and I, I just, I was just sitting there watching the show, enjoying it, but watching it with my girlfriend, I said, watch, he's going to do something now, like be nice to a cat. <laughs> and then moments later, he just literally, it's like the timing couldn't be more perfect. He, he stumbled across like an alley cat and he had some takeout food. And he's like, it was like the only food he had. He had no money. <laughs> and he's like, ah, uh, here, kitty, take this. And she was like, how did you, have you seen this before? I said, no, I haven't seen it before. It's literally, there's it a book no. called Save the Cat. It's like, yeah. it's like the, it's like a script storytelling 101. It's like, yeah, you can show a guy and he's like, you're just showing the audience like this is not a this is a guy having a bad day. He, he's not a bad guy. Right. He's just having a bad day. He can he, there is a good person inside him. And then you know, there's many more operators moments like that with my girlfriend after a while. She's like, like, I don't like watching TV with you. <laughs> you're like, tell me everything that's gonna happen. <laughs> 
are starting to run out of time. Uh oh. Uh, and I know you have a heart out. So before we go, uh, just a couple more things. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be a director, a supervising director in animation? Yeah, it's a great time, especially if you're a young lady or a woman, person of color, or you know everything else along that path. Boy, oh boy, you can really have some pretty great opportunities. But my advice that I generally give people when I talk to them is if they want a career in show business, is that the entertainment industry, Hollywood, is like a big locomotive moving down a track, all right? Like it's just going. It's so big, so much money. It's moving down this track. And in order to keep moving down the track, it needs coal shoveled into its engine. And you're that coal. Come to Hollywood. Be the goal. <laughs> yeah. We always need people. But yeah, the best thing to do if you want to get a job in animation and what we would look for is somebody who has a great Instagram, lots of art on Instagram, just somebody who has a lot of appeal to their drawings. Like if you see somebody who's like drawing so much, seems to have such a love of art and drawing, it from a managerial point of view, it may be cynical or sound gross, but I'm like, boy, this person loves to draw. They're like a nonstop fountain of artwork. Let's point them towards our show and have them put all of this energy towards what we're doing. But that really does make a big difference if we see you have a real love of it. And then, yeah, a network is very important. Like, it's all word of mouth. That's why it's so important. That's why it is very good to go to a college because if you go to college, you build a infrastructure. It's like prototype of a workplace. Right. College, essentially, you're building relationships and uh, uh, yeah, building relationships because then you're going to go to college with somebody and then they're going to move to New York or Atlanta or Vancouver or wherever, Paris, and they're going to get a job and then they're you're going to poke them and be like, hey, I'm looking for work. Have you heard of anything? And they're going to be, yeah, I'm at this place. I can recommend you. So it's good to just keep those relationships going and not burn too many bridges. Right. Great. Yeah, animation is a pretty small community and can be pretty gossipy. So it's uh, pretty good to kind of like uh, be good to the general grouping, you know, to put, a, put out good vibes and then have close friends who talk shit yeah. with about everybody behind their back <laughs> awesome thank you so much for coming on mike i know you gotta go but if there's remember everybody out there you're the coal yeah, be the coal. If there's anything you want to shout out, anything, any websites or social media or anything you're working on that hasn't been canceled. <laughs> Damn you, Netflix, for canceling Inside Job. <laughs> yeah, you could find me at Stuffed Animals on Instagram. That's with three Fs. It's stuffed with an extra F. And if you didn't catch it, it certainly wasn't promoted very much by Netflix, unfortunately, but I made a terrific interactive cartoon for Charlie Brooker, the creator of Black Mirror. 
And it was his follow-up to Bandersnatch, which is weird. But what he wanted to do is make an interactive Tex Avery cartoon because he loves Tex Avery so much, which is a great thing to hear that somebody who's so smart and so zeitgeisty loves Tex Avery. And so I was tapped to oversee this thing. And I brought in my pal, James Bowman, and we wrote it. And it's an interactive Tex Avery cartoon. It's like if you could kind of be a part of the fun of a Tex Avery cartoon. And it turned out very well. Even Cartoon Brew applauded us for how well the execution went. It really does look like an MGM cartoon from the late 40s. And not only does it look like it, it sounds like it. And I can feel confident saying that because our composer, Chris Willis, won an Emmy for his work on Cat Burglar. And his work included the use of a full orchestra so that it was orchestrated just like Scott Bradley would have orchestrated one of those Tom and Jerry Tex Avery cartoons back in the 40s and 50s. So it and really I'll, sounds like it. I'll, I'll certainly vouch for it. I've seen it myself when it first came out. Brilliant, brilliant work. Cheers. So go see Cat Burglar on Netflix. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again, Mike. This has been another episode of Inside Animation. <laughs>